You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And so in light of that, I want to invite you to join me as is our custom to open the Bible with us. So if you don't have a smartphone or your own Bible, there's a paperback Bible uh, that that is in a tray of the chair in front of you, and we want to make that even our gift to you. We'll be in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew, you'll find, uh, don't be afraid of the table of contents. Matthew is the the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, that, that word you might hear Christians use a lot. That word gospel simply just means good news. It is good news who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus. And the the first of those four Gospels, Matthew, is Matthew telling us the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, up to this point in the story, he's introduced us to, to Jesus through his miraculous birth, through powerful signs and wonders of healing and, and restoration that he, is, that he has done publicly, and even powerful teaching. Uh, you'll see five major sections all split apart uh, based on powerful speech that Jesus is, is delivering. The first one we saw, the most famous, is the Sermon on the Mount. And then we saw the second one about discipleship being sent out. And then you'll see at the conclusion of this chapter, chapter 13 is the beginning of the next major discourse, something that will be fairly familiar if, you, if you've ever heard of Jesus or what he does. There'll be his first take in the Gospel of Matthew at parables. And so he'll give these pictures, these stories, these parables of what his kingdom is like. What you'll also find, though, however, in chapter 13 is those parables start to get dark. They're about judgment. They're about things that are coming, spiritual realities that are dark before they are bright. And so the setup for that, we find ourselves in chapter 11 and 12, where basically we're given a list of people by Matthew that respond fairly negatively to Jesus. So much so that last week we saw that a turn in the story takes place where the Pharisees, the the religious authorities of that time, decide to conspire against Jesus in order to kill him. And so what we have is kind of the follow-up to that. We're going to read verses 22 in Matthew chapter 12 all the way to the end of the chapter. Now, a couple of things. I'm going to give you a a brief kind of update. If you want to skip back real briefly to verse 18, Jesus is quoting, or excuse me, that's not true. Um, Matthew is quoting the, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah to demonstrate what it is that Jesus is accomplishing. And he says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen. That is Jesus, the, the chosen and beloved, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That is that things will be restored even to the nations, to the ends of the earth. Now, this picture of Jesus as the chosen, beloved one of God, the Messiah, the the Savior, the one who comes to reconcile all things in and through his life, death, and resurrection is a picture of what we believe about God. That God is spirit, the apostle John tells us, and we worship God in spirit and truth. And so we're introduced to see this spiritual reality, this metaphysical reality that's working above, beneath, behind, and inside of all things that we can see, taste, touch, and feel. And Jesus is the Spirit of God, the God who created the universe in flesh, in human, not just form, but in reality. And so I say that to to get you ready for a conversation between Jesus and others about spiritual things. 
Now, here's the second part. I, I'll, I'll give you kind of a disclaimer. It is regularly our custom to open God's word, and my goal is to stretch your attention span for the Bible. Um, and I know that for, for many of you, this is the longest uh, period of time that you will sit with a Bible in front of you. And so my goal is to stretch your attention span and a t- appetite for the Bible and even for the teaching of the Bible. So the reading we're going to read today is a little over four minutes. And I, I invite you, it's okay if, if, you, if you space out, right? If you go to someplace warm and nice in your mind and, and daydream, that's okay. Uh, that is absolutely all right. Um, I, I hope not to abuse your attention span, but to stretch it and just simply pay attention to the thing that maybe grabs your, grabs your focus and brings it back to our reading. So beginning in verse 22, after Jesus has been confronted by and he knows that the Pharisees, the religious authorities, are going to conspire to kill him. Beginning in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? And therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In what might be a list of Jesus' greatest hits, provocative sayings that confound us and even confuse us, I want to propose to you three different things that emerge from these powerful statements. Spirits, signs, and siblings. That's right, I can't say anything without an alliteration. Spirits, signs, and siblings. And I want to propose to you a question. How do you explain the things that you do not understand? How do you go about making sense of the things that are seemingly inexplicable? What do you do with that which is mysterious and even unknowable? Because we're introduced here by Jesus in a conversation about spiritual reality a cause, a will, a plan, something that is working behind the scenes and in the scenes. And so, I want to ask you again, what do you do with life's greatest mysteries? How do you explain them? Where do you look for answers? It might even be good to ask you, especially if in this room, maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe, maybe you're not sure, then, then I'm glad you're here because you, you get to hear Jesus in full force, saying some of the most provocative things. We'll do our best to explain our way through them, but, but as he speaks about spiritual reality, I, I, wonder, I wonder what you think about spiritual things. As a side note, I, I would say that kind of the philosophical and let's call it metaphysical or spiritual explanation that that most of us have imbibed in, whether we realize it or not, is what, what some authors call simply a soft nihilism. A soft nihilism, after all. Classical nihilism is the belief that everything is meaningless. Right? There is nothing behind the scenes. There is no greater story. There is nothing going on. 
period, end of sentence, full stop. That's classical nihilism. But we live in a weird thing that, that has emerged over the last couple of centuries even. It's called simply soft nihilism. That in our heads, we kind of think, yeah, there's no meaning, there's no reason, there's no right or wrong, everything is kind of subjective. But instead of just stopping right there, we, we, we fill in the blank with what, what I describe, again, and authors have called a soft nihilism. So like, nothing matters, everything is meaningless, so simply enjoy yourself, right? Which, which is in and of itself speaking about meaning, right? Isn't that saying that like, true meaning is found in what? Enjoying yourself. Or maybe you hear like, look, there's... there's there's no meaning, there's no God, there is no spiritual reality, there's no metaphysical uh, narrative going on, there's, there's nothing, there's no greater meaning, so therefore, just like, right, YOLO, you only live once. But even then, it, it, it doesn't fully embrace that there is meaninglessness in the universe. It's like, things are meaning as far as I can tell, and so, well, let me insert my sort of soft meaning. Namely, just live for today, live for enjoyment, which is difficult because it puts you and I in a really difficult spot. It's what makes us anxious all the time. It's what gives most of us a low-grade depression and disappointment with everything. Because two things are in play. One, we really were hoping that there is meaning. And two, we tend to be very disappointed in the meaning that we think we found. Jesus here, in speaking about a spiritual reality, is addressing those very things that I believe you and I are walking around with whether we know it or not. The discouragement, disappointment. Right? As, as we look at the world and it's not like we want it. As we look at our lives and it's not like we thought they would be. Right? As we just look at our circumstances and wish they were better. Always wanting more. Jesus says that's because there is a spiritual reality to these things. In and through and behind, all that you see is a reality that God is at work. God is doing something. And the way that he proposes us to consider this is by describing what that spirit is ultimately doing. What it is that God is doing. And so... He tells us that ultimately there is a true spiritual reality, an ultimate spiritual reality that's happening. Now, as we walk in through th this text, beginning in, verse, uh, beginning in verse 22, I'll give you a crash course on spirituality as a Christian would see it anyway. So if this is maybe one of your first times joining us, maybe, maybe, maybe you're just visiting, uh, maybe you have questions about Christianity, let me give you a brief crash, crash course on what we describe as spiritual, Right? One, we believe that the Spirit of God, God's very nature in, again, in that metaphysical, invisible reality, is part of who God is. That is, that we believe God exists as the creator of the seen and visible universe, right? That God not just, didn't just create all the things that are in time and space, God invented even time and space. And yet that material reality, the physical world that you and I see and live and interact with every day isn't all that there is. There is, in fact, a spirit of God. God's very spirit inhabits these things, is around these things, is working in these things to, to point to himself. Uh, these, these realities that you and I interact with are simply like fingerprints that point to the creator. And yet also we believe that God's spirit, the very nature of God, came and took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So the Gospel of John tells us that God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and truth. That is that if you were to try to put God in, let's say, scientific or strictly material terms, you wouldn't be able to do it. Right? Just think if I asked you, like, how much does God weigh? Right? You're like, ah, that's, you know, that's, that's not a question that you, that you or I have the brains or tools to begin to fathom the depths of, right? That's just one among a multitude, of, an infinite number of questions that when we ask about God, we can't fully answer because God is beyond that. God is more than that. And yet, that is truthfully the nature of God. He is above and beyond all that we can even imagine. And God's Spirit is at work in the world. God's Spirit is present and active in the world. God's Spirit is present, in fact, omnipresent. And so for the Christian, here's what we believe about the Spirit. The Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Corinth and and begins to explain these spiritual realities that these people were beginning to experience themselves that he describes as spiritual gifts. That is, there was something that they had been endowed with when they had professed faith in Christ that was supernatural. It was, it was something beyond that could be just something that could be just physically explained as a talent or a trait. And so he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led, right? That word idols is simply a a manufactured God, right? Something that we look to for answers, something we look to for satisfaction that God alone can provide. Therefore, he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So for Christians, even to believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord Even to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and does what he says he can do is a spiritual and miraculous reality, right? Jesus says some confounding things, but one of them he says to his disciples, like, look, even greater things that you've seen me do, you'll see happen in your midst. That is that people will hear the good news of Jesus and be transformed by faith. And that is a miraculous reality that the Spirit of God does. This is important because for Christians, this means we can't boast. We can't brag, right? If if you, like, a boastful Christian is the greatest oxymoron ever, right? It's It's like a child who receives a gift on Christmas and pats himself on the back for it, right? Wow, look what I did. It's like, no, that's not, that's not, that's not how gifts work. Christians are the ones that know that what they have received by faith is a gift, and it is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. This means, in in some sense, in, in in a hard and powerful sense, you're not bright enough to be a Christian. You're not that smart. Even if you're like, well, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've worked my way through and here are the options and here's why I've chosen to become a Christian or right. Or here's the other thing. You're not even that bright enough to not be a Christian. There are spiritual realities and play, and and for the Christian, we we invite this gift and go, oh man, the fact that my eyes have been opened to Jesus is a gift of his spirit. The fact that I say Jesus is Lord is evidence of a spiritual reality. Now, back to our text. A demon-oppressed man, right? 
Now, again, we're already confronted with a spiritual reality, right? That there is a demonic spiritual force in the world, that there are actually good and evil things behind the material world. A demon-oppressed man and this demon oppression evidently caused him to be what? Blind and mute. Now, Matthew is, is clear when he tells us the details he wants to know, and he is ambiguous when it's not important. So, what does it mean? Does the demon make him blind, or he was both demon-oppressed and blind and unable to speak? Right? We don't know. But what happened? Jesus healed him. Already, we're introduced to, like, if there is a spiritual reality, Matthew wants us to know Jesus has authority over it. This is not the first time. He's already done this many times. But Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed. Quite literally, they were like, crazy. They were out of their mind. This is the same phrase uh, in, in Mark's gospel when Jesus' family comes and thinks that Jesus is out of his mind. It's the same phrase. So more colloquially, we would say like, people saw this and the people were out of their minds. The people were crazy about Jesus. That's how amazed they were. And they were so amazed that they began to contemplate a mystery. Is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David? It's almost like he, the, the people are already starting to clamor for this. They're beginning to realize something bigger is happening here. It's even, even faster than what we see in, in chapter 16 when Peter lands on the answer to this question, who is this person? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only Beelzebul, right? Who is Beelzebul? Thankfully, Matthew, knowing that we weren't experts in first century pagan culture, is what? The prince of demons. So this title or name of like a, a demonic authority, a demonic principality, is the one that the Pharisees say are, is really at work. And Jesus does something amazing here. This is a pretty silly thing to say. If you read the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' response is pretty concise. But did you catch that? Jesus goes on pretty much for the rest of the chapter, pontificating, teaching, on the answer to this question. They start with just something that's dismissive. Ah, he's a demon, right? Something like, we, oh, he's, he's out of his mind, right? Dismissive. And Jesus stops for a moment and then goes on this rant, right? What do you mean I'm casting out demons by Satan? And then logically, he's like, if Satan were divided against himself, Satan would be destroying himself, right? You, you meant to kind of hear the irony and even sarcasm, like, seriously, Satan's destroying himself? That's right, that's what's happening? And then he turns it on them. If that's what I'm doing, then how is it that if what you think I'm doing is somehow wrong, what about your people that evidently by, by, by means of different routines, incantations, would also cast out demons? What about them? How do they do that? Verse 28 now we're introduced to the picture of the spiritual reality in the words of Jesus. But if it is, and said, not by prince of demons, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast, demon, cast out demons, then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that phrase we'll see elsewhere in the gospels, it's this idea that it's here. The kingdom is at hand. We've heard it said before. This is it. If the Spirit of God has empowered me to restore and heal these people in miraculous ways, stop for a moment because that means that God's kingdom is here. That God's will and work and reign in the world is present. It's visible. And then he tells another kind of mini parable. He tells a couple. After all, how can a person enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Now, we're introduced to, uh, to so many different realities here, but, but let's, let's just kind of work through this. The work of the Spirit of God in Jesus and his followers was evidence that God was initiating the last act of the drama of salvation. That is, the story of history was entering a new, and, and we would even say a final phase. The culmination, the climax, the greatest part of the story has now been inaugurated. The kingdom is now here. And the evidence, Jesus says for that, is the signs and wonders that he is performing. But, then he tells us a little bit more about ultimate reality. Therefore, based on this, ultimately, right? Jesus is coming. What a beautiful picture. Jesus is coming and plundering the enemy. He's like beating up the enemy on our behalf. We're no longer going to be oppressed by the enemy in some way because he's going to beat him up, plunder him himself, take, and take from his possession you and me. Therefore, I tell you, and here he drops a bomb, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Let's do our best to kind of think through a couple of things. The first and most important here is is this word forgiven. Did you hear that? It showed up multiple times. As if to say that the most urgent spiritual reality is sin. And the only spiritual remedy is forgiveness. So when Jesus has an opportunity to teach on and explain spiritual things, did you notice how he does it? He talks about forgiveness. As if to say, you can't think about spiritual and divine things unless you think about sin and forgiveness. That is, things that are broken and wrong in the world and in you and me and the way that we long for them to be repaired. And how is it that they will be made right? How will ultimately they be accounted for in this end of the story? Through forgiveness. So especially if you're not a Christian or you have deep questions about Christianity, this is why Christians go on and on about sin and forgiveness. And you may think, well, why, you know, why are you so fixated with that, right? And in fact, maybe, maybe in some cases this has been used to beat you over the head by a Christian. I apologize on behalf. Uh, we're, we're, we are in need of a lot of grace, and this is evident and obvious to everyone who knows it, right? And all I would share is like, we are, we are so fixated on this because Jesus tells us this is the reality. That all of the brokenness, all of, right, even, even this, he gives us a real live example. This man was under a demonic oppression that hindered his life, harmed, like, I mean, again, it tells us very little about him, but he's in a long list of people that Jesus has healed. This man was living miserably, and yet Jesus steps in, and fixes it. All the things that are broken in the world are caused by what we call as sin. Rebellion against God, a willful act on our part, and a disposition that we live in that perpetually wants to rebel against God. That we want to be God. In fact, the very first stories of the Bible are exactly that. How people had everything they wanted, right? If you find yourself going like, man, I'd be happy if I had everything I wanted. The very first people had everything they wanted and God. And, and evidently that was not enough. And they turned against God. And so every broken thing that you and I see in the world, in your life and in the lives of the people around us, is ultimately the result of sin. Separation from God. Wrong 
rebellion, things that have been done against God, and God's work in restoring all things is not maybe what you would think. It comes through, did you hear that? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. This is the beauty of grace, especially if you're curious about Christianity. It's an offer of something that maybe you didn't even know you needed or wanted. And it first comes as an offense. Now, I've illustrated this before, but I think we see a picture of it here. It's like if someone comes up to you today and offers you a breath mint as a gift. Think about what a grace that is, right? You didn't buy it. You didn't purchase it. And yet think about what you kind of have to admit in order to receive that gift. And to receive that gift, you have to admit that you are without, that you are lacking, or worse, you might have terrible breath. And so this is true of all gifts. To receive any gift, to acquire anything, is to acknowledge the lack. This is the beauty of, I mean, this is the beauty of creation. This is the beauty of high V and other grocery stores, right? Even though grocery stores are awesome, we get everything we need from them. You have to start with what? A humility. I mean, no one ever says this, but like everyone walking into the grocery store today is evidently saying, I am without, I am in need. And here I have found the remedy. And I found even a more powerful, right, a more powerful picture of this grace. Jesus is saying in that same way, in some infinitely powerful way, you didn't know that you needed forgiveness, but it's here and waiting for you. It's available for you. You may have not known that what's broken in the world is rebellion against God, but, but friend, it is, and here's the good news. Even though you may not have known it, you may be, I'm the first person who asked you to consider it, the remedy has already been supplied. I learned that my analogy is even more profound. Uh, in the last couple of months, my wife and I have started to cook different recipes, uh, mainly because I think the most difficult thing as a married person, is to decide what to eat and plan meals. I don't know why that is so difficult, but even like today, on a normal day, uh, following our gathering, my wife and I would look at each other and enter into an existential crisis by asking, what are we doing for lunch? <laughs> so we're doing our best to try new things, trying new Italian dishes, new Asian dishes, you name it, right? And recently, uh, we tried a new Asian dish, and it required oyster sauce oyster sauce i don't i had no idea what that was and wouldn't you know it the grocery store had it and if not there are praise god the nations who have come to sioux falls they're asian grocery stores will give me probably four varieties of them well i don't know what oyster sauce is i didn't even know what it smells like or tastes like i was a bit shocked when i found that out and yet when i I didn't, know what it, I didn't know it existed. I didn't know that was what made beef and broccoli taste like beef and broccoli. No clue. And yet, when I found out about it, I was thoroughly thrilled to find out that there is a ready supply for people like you and me. Multiply that times the infiniteness of God's grace. And that's what Jesus is doing here. What's broken in the world is sin. And even though you didn't know you needed it, Here's the good news, right? The, at first, it's, it's heartbreaking. You're like, oh, I don't, I, I, don't, I, I don't want this to be true. But, but friend, when you begin to embrace it, you will come to find out that God has amply supplied all that you need in Christ. 
But we're not there yet. It gets a little bit worse. Jesus says that what they're actually doing, accusing him, is worse. They're flirting with, evidently, something that you can't turn back from. And you heard it there, and I I won't say very much about this. It says, if we were to blaspheme, to speak sacrilegiously about the Spirit of God, we'll never be forgiven. Now, this is a mysterious thing. I'll kind of give you a lens through which you're, you're meant to see it. It's meant to be a provocative mystery. You're meant to go like, oh, no. Is that me? And so here's why I get to encourage you. I say this as well. You're going to see this throughout the Gospel of Matthew because Jesus regularly says these kind of provocatively mysterious things that are meant to stir you up and go, oh no, Lord, help me, right? We saw this in, do you remember this? We saw this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says like, look, you can't please God unless you're perfect. And you're meant to go like, I can't be perfect. What am I going to do? And Jesus is like, all right, hi, right? You're meant to be provocatively, right, stirred and go, oh no. And so I would, I would apply some, some encouraging logic here in light of the fact that we know that no one can see that Jesus is good if it isn't the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here's what I'll tell you. If you wonder, if you find yourself even wondering if you have blasphemed or if you have turned upon the Holy Spirit in some way, can I encourage you? It means you haven't. The same is like, I know many of us, like, we talk about this regularly, especially if you're like kind of raised in the church or if you have just deep doubts, we often wonder, am I really saved? Am I really Christian? Are all these promises that I get about heaven and eternity with God, are they true for me? And here's what I get to tell you. Do you know the people who don't wonder if they're saved? People who are not saved. Do you know the people who don't wonder if they've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? People who have. So just even the fact, if this stirs you, If you find yourself going like, oh no, friend, stop for a moment and bask in the work of the Holy Spirit. He is is awakening you to something. So don't be overly discouraged by this. If if you find yourself like, oh no, have I, you're already opening yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit to be restored. So how would I define this? Well, I'll steal from a couple of commentarians. Here's that we would simply define the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is a pervasive or a long-lasting or intentional or prolonged rebellion against God. Because we already saw that the way that we come to hope and faith in Christ is through what? The power of the Holy Spirit. So to turn on him, to turn on the work of the Spirit, to deny the work of the Spirit, to draw us to the Christ, is to close us ourselves off from life. Think of it this way. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is spiritual suicide. It's to turn away from our only hope. Jesus is our only hope, and the Holy Spirit draws us to him. So, friend, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a knowing and enduring opposition to God and his work, an active opposition, because we're actively working against what God means to do for us. Here's the second part. It gets a little bit worse. Verse 33 through 37, he begins to share with us that this spiritual reality is worse. It actually is a reflection of who you are. These awful things that these people were saying against Jesus weren't because they were just angry, agitated. That was true. It was because, did you hear that? Because they were evil. And he gives us another one of his greatest hits, something that Christians take very seriously, that out of the abundance, the overflow, the fullness of our heart come the words of our mouth. And those words are powerful because they reveal the nature of our heart and The nature of our words will ultimately show us how we will experience judgment from God. Think of it this way. The awful things that you say emanate from the awful person that you are. 
Now remember I told you, it's, it's like the gift of, it's like, hang with me, I'm not gonna leave you there. It's like the gift of the, the, the breath mint, right? It's like, oh, that's mean, but you're right, right? Th- th- this is meant to stir in us a hunger. He says the things that you say are because that you're deeply evil. Uh, the way I would describe these kinds of words, it's like, it's like how hungry you are whenever the food gets served. You're starving, but then the food gets there and you see it and then something happens. You're even more hungry. This is like that. This is like that. When, when you begin to realize how hopeless and how destitute we are apart from Christ, it's that hunger because we, we see it. We go, it's right there. So hang with me. I won't leave you here. But what he's telling us is that ultimately you don't need to just clean up your act. You need to be made new. You need a new heart after all. And even the words that come out of your mouth and mine are not words that will disappear, but the words, they're words that evidently are being held and stored. They're being stored, and they will reveal your heart and mine. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe this isn't true for all of you. I say a lot of really dumb things, uh, and I usually do it when you guys are listening. Ugh. And this thought, remember, remember I told you, this thought is provocative. This thought is shocking. The God of the universe will judge me by my words? And even worse, the words that come out of my mouth are a result of how corrupt I am in my own heart? This is meant to invite you and I to simply cry out to God, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy, God. Maybe the way I would express it like this is, or illustrate it, it's, it's kind of like uh, in our culture, we want to do everything we can to, to disprove this. And so we have lots of rhetorical devices to do that. My favorite one, there's a long list and I encourage you to talk about it at lunch. My favorite one is, I'm just saying. You heard that one? Hey, you're a really stupid person. And then the person's like offended. And then you, what do you do? You go, I'm just saying. Right, do you hear it? Do you hear how we want to disprove what Jesus is saying here? Look, look, I'm just saying. It's not that I'm actually a mean person. I'm just saying. You hear it? Like, I think you're dumb and stupid. I'm not. Well, I'm just saying. As if, as if it somehow is like, now that, now, that, now that we both know I'm a good person, and we know that these words are just words, now we can proceed. Man, there's a million rhetorical devices, right? And if you listen for them, like anytime someone goes like, honestly, or let's be honest, you're like, What? What were you being, right? Like, right? And, and, and we have these devices all the time, right? I'm not a bad person. You know why I'm not a bad person? Because I said no offense, right? And therefore, I am innocent of whatever I say. Or do you hear it? And Jesus says that is evidence of how corrupt our heart is. And yet that is an invitation to receive a grace that's deeper than maybe you didn't realize you needed. He says, by your words you'll be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Listen to what he's saying. Your life will ultimately be judged by whether or not you confess that Jesus really is the promised son of David. God's spirit made flesh to save us from our sins. And your life will either be bannered and marked and labeled by a profession that apart from Christ I am hopeless, but thank God that I have him, or it will be marked by the profession of denial. I know it's provocative, but it goes on. Then they say they want a sign, verse 38. 
They say, I want a sign. I want to see something. And Jesus, again, using very strong language, right? This evil and adulterous generation. He wasn't saying that these people had been maritally unfaithful. They were, he was speaking in prophetic terms. How the Old Testament often talks about the people who have rebelled against God like an unfaithful spouse. And he says that, look, this generation demanding more is an evil generation. And there's not going to be a sign that's given to them except for the sign of Jonah. So hear the powerful invitation that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is evidence that there is hope. Do you find yourself wondering, is there meaning or purpose in all these things? Have you ever thought to yourself, I just want to know, I just want to see a sign. And the God of the universe and his mercy has provided it for you. That Christ has come. That he has done what you and I could not. And he has restored us to the Father. And the sign is that he has done what no one could do. Namely, he did the one thing that God cannot do, die. And he did the one thing that human beings cannot do, not die. And he has in his one person done for us something that history testifies. Everything's different because of Jesus. Everything's changed. And friend, if you wonder, like, is, is there any meaning? Look at the cross and the empty grave. Hear this mysterious proclamation that Christians have been saying for centuries. He rose. He's alive, and I know him. I have experienced his presence. He has restored me. I'm not who I once was. I'm not who I'm supposed to be just yet. But friend, I'll never go back because I've been made alive in him. And all the wickedness and evil that's evidenced by the awful things that you and I have said, he's, we can proclaim, are now made new, are made right. The new kingdom has been inaugurated and begun. And the Spirit of God is at work in me. But this evil generation wants more. That is that people evidently look at Jesus and say, I want more. You're not enough. But the sign of dying and rise again is the sign. This is why we sing about it. Which is why we talk about it. This is why we pray in light of it. He even says that the Syrians got this. This is the first people that Jonah went to, and even they heard it and are going to evidently convict and speak against and judge these people who have rejected Jesus. They repented and turned to God, even though they didn't have the sign that you and I have, the sign that this generation had, namely Jesus healing, restoring, making things new. And so it's interesting, this, this story began with what it means to be redeemed. Did you hear it? A man who was under demonic oppression and by the power of Jesus was made new. And yet Jesus turns the story in light of these accusations and now we see what it means to be lost. What it means to utterly reject God. To say that what Christ has done is not enough. The story of Jonah is a story of God miraculously getting a person who was rebellious where he was supposed to be all along. Story of people who heard the goodness of God and repented. Now we went through the book of Jonah several years ago, but I, I get to just remind you how this is true for us. That ultimately, Jesus is the true and greater Jonah who was cast overboard so that we would be delivered. 
But even more, Jesus is the true and better fish who though in our rebellion, hopeless, lost, right, in the belly of a fish, we were miraculously delivered three days later to where God meant for us to be all along. I stole this from some, uh, from some people I'd heard write on it and kind of turned it into something. We went through the gospel, gospel of Jonah. That's true, sort of. <laughs> I guess if you read, G- that's right. The, he calls him the, the, jo- the book of Jonah. When Jesus says that he's the greater Jonah, something greater than Jonah is here, we get this beautiful picture of the story of Jonah wetting our appetites for what Jesus is. Because Jonah came with a word from God, but Jesus comes as the word of God. Jonah ran from the Lord's presence, but Jesus came in order to bring the Lord's presence. Jonah was a sinner running from God. Jesus is God running after sinners. Jonah came as a Hebrew sinner. Jesus came as a Hebrew savior. Jonah slept in the stormy boat because he was overwhelmed. Jesus slept in a stormy boat because he was at peace. The pagans on the boat sought to save Jonah's life, but Jesus sought to save the pagans' lives. Jonah could not command a storm to calm, but Jesus commanded the storm to calm. And Jonah was thrown into the sea to appease the wrath of God on himself for what he had done. Jesus was thrown into the ground to appease the wrath of God for what you and I have done. Because of Jonah, one nation, the Ninevites, were called to God. But because of Jesus, every tribe, tongue, and nation are called to God. Do you get it? Jesus was in the belly of the fish three days. And Jesus, see, I get it. I'm, I'm already getting mixed up. Jonah, Jesus. Okay, sorry. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days. Jesus was in the grave three days. Jonah was thrown into the storm of God's wrath for one time, and Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath for all time. Jonah needed a Savior just like you and me, and Jesus is that Savior. Do you get it? Do you get what he says? Do you get what he means when he says something better and greater than Jonah is here? Because after all, the story of Jonah is crazy. And yet Jesus says, if you somehow want more than that, you're missing out. In Jesus, we find the fullness of evidence. And the evidence that you do not have hope is that you want more than Jesus. Is that a man being born of a virgin, living a perfect, sinless life, and taking your place on the cross, and resurrected victorious over that as a vindication of God over our righteousness in him. And if you find yourself going, I want more, that's evidence that you are living a hopeless life. It's evidence that you're missing out on the sign. And I'm really grateful that you're here to understand it. They, before he speaks about family, he gives us this last cryptic parable. He kind of goes back. Remember he said like, I'm plundering the strong man's house. But then he just makes this, Another, uh, this other story, how like when an unclean spirit goes out, that spirit, unless it is filled, unless it is inhabited by something better, ultimately changed, then that household is going to be under attack by a legion of demons. He says, unless ultimately that I fill this area, if, if I'm not the one who has plundered the strong man and inhabited the house, then they will, be, they will come back and this evil generation will be worse off than before. Friend, unless your life is inhabited by Jesus, it will be overrun by judgment. You hear the picture of a house, a home? I mean, this, this picture of households has been throughout the entirety of this chapter. After all, it started with him eating on the Sabbath and them saying that they had somehow profaned the Sabbath. And so 
we see here the true and better household. It's the home, the house, the life that is inhabited by Jesus. So that whatever the enemy, right, whatever the enemy may stock up on, right, you get this picture of these demons going like, fine, I'm going to go get seven more. And for the life that is fully inhabited by Jesus, there we have nothing to fear. There's nothing that can assail us. There is no weapon that is formed against us that can prosper. All those that might rise against us will fall. This is the picture of Christ inhabiting and bringing peace and rest. This is what it means that the greater Jonah has come to inhabit our lives. Here's the last part. We'll end on it. It changes the way we see family. Now, how many times has he already mentioned family? In chapter 4, Jesus has already told us that his first disciples immediately left their boat and their father to follow Jesus. In chapter 8, he said that ultimately, as a man came, hey, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And in chapter 10, he says, don't think that I've only come to bring peace. I have come to bring peace through a sword that will separate families. It will set man against father, daughter against mother, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Ultimately, you will lose your life in order to find it. So this isn't new. Jesus saying provocative things about the family. But his own family came and said, hey, we want to talk to you evidently. We want to speak to him. And his reply to the messenger is, who is my real family? Who is my mother? In fact, it's my disciples. So friend, hear the last provocative, mysterious thing that's causing us, meant to cause us for, to awe in him. In Christ, we find our true spiritual and eternal family. This might be the most powerful for many of you because when you think about family, you're introduced to what I would probably argue is is your view of ultimate reality in one way or another, good or bad. And so for many of you, maybe you've been blessed and you have a wonderful, amazing family loving you, caring for you, not perfectly, certainly. And for many of you, the opposite is true. When you think about your family and the people who were supposed to care for you, the people you're supposed to be able to depend on, there is a huge gap. There's a huge scar in the places where they didn't give you what you needed. This is the majestic mystery that Christ could bring about something greater than even the greater, greatest love and loyalty that we can know on earth, namely that of the nuclear family. Here's what I think this means for us. For you especially, like we are called to love and honor our parents. So here's what this is not. Uh, We don't know what he said next. Um, We don't have any reason to believe that he was like, forget you family. He was like, I'm never going to talk to you again. So, So if you hear this and you're like, great, my family's trash. I'm so glad that I don't have an excuse to dishonor them, right? That's not the goal here. Right? We're still meant to honor our family, albeit we know the family is simply, like the rest of creation, a material reality that points to the immaterial. Unfortunately, that's the first place that sin destroys. I get a kick out of that. Most people are, are really, they're shocked that their family is dysfunctional, right? Dysfunctional family is a redundancy. There is no family that is not dysfunctional. And if you're like, not mine, like, well, you're probably the main reason it is, right? Like, And Christians aren't shocked by that because we've read the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is one crazy story after another of how sin destroys what? The family. It destroys it completely. 
In fact, the first story of our family, right, is of our great, 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 grandfather Cain and him murdering our great, 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 great uncle Abel. And so when you find dysfunction and sin in your own family, stop for a moment, show grace and honor. All they were meant to do is to point to the greater family that Jesus says he brings to us. And so you can offer grace to them. You can offer grace to them. But here's what I think it means also for us, especially. I know many of you, even now, are wrestling with the thought of responding to, responding to what God's calling you to be. And the thing that's holding you back is what your family would think. On one hand, I know that's disorienting, and I want to encourage you. Jesus says that's exactly what will happen. It shouldn't shock you. It ended in persecution and being disowned in this first century, but for us, it may mean something different. Some of you even now are discerning, like, you're, you're, you're not sure you want to be a member of this church or another church because you're afraid of what your parents will think. Instead of responding to what God has done to be baptized, some of you are more afraid of what your parents will think. Instead of living or acting a certain way, you're scared of what your parents would think, right? Welcome. Again, read Genesis. That shouldn't shock you. And so I want to encourage you. In Christ, we find our true spiritual and eternal family. In Christ, we have the acceptance that we crave, that you and I both know our parents can't fully give. Now, again, I can't want to keep saying this. That doesn't mean you should, like, some of you are like, woo I forget my parents. That's, again, that's not what this is, right? This is ultimately the thing that God gave us our parents to see is what Christ has come to fulfill. But here's the last part. Many of you are parents. Um, and here's, here's I've, just, I've thought of this however I, however I could like encourage you. Um, there is no greater identity group that you can have than in Jesus, even greater than your own biological family. And your biological family is going to like feel that as an offense, right? And so parents, can I just, can we, can, we, can we make a deal? Even as I read this, you think I'm talking about somebody else. Just fast forward for a minute for your child. And fast forward 20, 30 years, and they're sitting across the table from me. What do you want them to say to me about you? right? And even if, you, if you're not a parent, but you're a part of like serving and kids connection and loving these children, we, all, we think it's someone else, right? We think someone else would cause my child to stumble. But did you hear the story of redemption? Can we just not be shocked? Can we make an agreement then that sometimes we hinder our children from following Jesus faithfully? That sometimes, if not all the time, even parents can be a stumbling block to experiencing God's grace for children. Can we just make a deal not to be shocked by it? Be like, oh yeah. That's, and, and be open about that. That's just my, there you go. Because the new family that Jesus offers removes old barriers. It removes old barriers of family and ethnicity and nationality and gives us a brand new reality marked by mercy and grace, not judgment, not expectations that can never be lived up to. And no one wants to think that they would experience this, but friend, let's reflect on the nature of sin that corrupts everything and the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Because re let's revisit what we've just seen here. The work of Jesus is the ultimate spiritual reality. And I know if you find yourself wondering, are we more than this? Are we more than just skin and bones? 
Is life more than this? Yes. Yes. And Jesus is it. Jesus is the true and better and real sign. And if you find yourself thinking, is there some evidence that this is not all a waste? Is there some evidence that I have meaning? Yes. And it's Jesus. Jesus is the filler and the protector of our lives, the true household. And maybe you're looking for some guarantee that everything will turn out all right. Friend, you have it. It's Jesus. And Jesus is our good and better big brother. And if you're looking for real belonging, genuine love for who you really are, making us into who we could ultimately be, friend, Jesus says, I am it. Jesus is the true and better spiritual reality. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, the miraculous sign we've all been looking for. Jesus is the true and better home or household, and Jesus is the true and better family. What a provocative, yeah, that's, that's, that's not a bad thing to clap at, I think. Jesus is these things for us, and friend, you will not find these things, these promises fulfilled in anything else. Now, how do we respond it's really simple. In just a moment, we're going to do what a family called together by Christ does. You know what we do? We share a meal. And so in just a moment, we're going to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper, the communion. That is that we come in contact with and are in community with Christ himself. And the way that we experience family eternally is in a provocative mystery that also stirs us. That the God of the universe came to be with us and for us. His own body, betrayed, broken, his own blood spilled so that you and I would not come to find that the end of the story is a judgment, but you and I would come to find that the end of the story is what? A table. A table. Where our true and better big brother, the sign of God's love and hope, the spiritual reality made manifest for us is an invitation to a table where God gives himself to us. In just a moment, we're going to sing together and prepare, and then we're going to celebrate that with one another. And so we're going to have a little moment just to, to prepare. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that we're not to take this in an unworthy manner. The way we say this is that communion, the Lord's Supper, is for repentant and baptized believers. And so if that's not you, that's okay. It just means this would be a really silly snack. It'd be a really unsatisfying cracker and juice. But for those of us who have spiritual eyes, who have seen ultimate spiritual reality, that cracker becomes more. It becomes satisfaction for our souls. That juice becomes more. It becomes welcome to a table where we are loved forever. Let's pray together and thank God for that. Jesus, thank you that you have come to be for us what we could never be for ourselves. I thank you even now for the the proclamation that you, you told Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John, go and tell my brothers that I'm going to go to your father and my father. God, thank you that in Christ that is true for us. That even though we have turned on you, even though we have rebelled against you, you have given yourself to make us your own. The longings to have mysteries answered we find ultimately in you the story, the metaphysical reality that's shaping our lives and everything around us, Lord, would you give us the curiosity to welcome the thought that it's you, that you've been leading us to this place. And even now, even as, even, even the youngest in the room, if they're wondering why they're here, maybe it's because they feel like their parents drug them. 
might even now we begin to realize that we have been invited and drawn by the Holy Spirit to see Jesus as Lord. Jesus, thank you that you have invited us to the table not to experience judgment, but to experience welcome. God, we know that the only way to see you, the only way to fulfill your will is through obedience. The only way to be adopted into your family is through obedience. But God, we thank you that that obedience is not our own. That obedience is the perfect obedience of Jesus who poured out his own life, his body broken and his blood poured out so that we would be welcomed at the table with the Father forever and ever. Thank you for this reality. As we sing about it, help us to hope in it as we prepare to meet you at this table. In Jesus' name, amen.